sights to show you. You're listening to the Sirens of Scream. We're the geek podcast that proves sometimes dead is better. And this is a 52nd episode. I'm your host, Jackie DeVore. And I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Melissa Meekin. Hello, hello. And Sierra Halk. Hello there. And tonight we're joined by our favorite historian, June Gregory. Oh, so glad to be back with you guys. Thank you for joining us again. We love having you on here. Always a pleasure. So we're going to jump right into recommendations since we've already grilled like the absolute hell out of June on here before. So (laughs) (laughs) we can't really do it anymore. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and start with mine because it's just one simple little one here. Well... Not really that simple, because he's actually pretty baller. This is an artist that I happen to stumble on Instagram a couple days ago, Justin O'Neill. And <gasps> I know. Hang on, Juna. I'll, I'll send you the link here. Yeah. I'm going to go follow him on all <laughs> check, my Instagram messages. <laughs> I know. The second I saw that witch on the post there burning, I was like, oh, shit. Not only is this my new uh, recommendation, but I'm going to need to buy just so many prints. This is incredible. Yeah. This is gorgeous. So, yeah, this this is like those pale colors and those beautiful lines and this absolutely like he's wonderful with the female form and the sketchy style. I'm all about it. This is my kind of art right here. Oh, I'm opening it now. Where is this artist from? Do we know? California. Oh, California. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Oh, it's so rock and roll. And he's got a creepy bunny one, which, you know, that just pulls me right in. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fastest way to Jackie's heart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that is mine for tonight. Melissa, what do you got for us? I want to talk about a silly little show I've been watching on Netflix. It is not horror, but it's magic. So close enough, right? (laughs) I want to hear about this. I was flipping through Netflix the other night and I was like, huh, do I want to watch that? You know, okay, so I'm going to talk about Magic for Humans. Uh, It's a show that just popped up on my Netflix recently. And I actually have been watching it because my mom's been staying in my house for a week. And my mom is not into anything scary. She's not into anything like really very interesting at all normally. So I've been I like, you know, when it's kind of like 830 at night and I have put the kid to bed and I'm stuck kind of sitting there with mom and I don't want to have awkward conversations. I'm like, let's find something to watch that mom's going to like. So so I tried this and it turned out that she liked it and I really enjoyed it. It is this magician named Justin Willman. And what he does is he kind of like, it's interesting because each episode has kind of a theme. So he kind of talks about like different kind of almost like little bits of the human condition. Like he kind of starts out talking about like technology. One is about like technology and, and the scary idea of like technology is taking jobs and taking over people's, you know, lives and kind of like what happens when you don't kind of hold technology at arm's length a little bit and then he's got one that's about relationships and they each have kind of like these interesting little like parts of the psyche that he wants to kind of delve into but what's really interesting about the kind of magic he does is it's very psychological like he asks people to do certain things or answer certain questions that throw them off guard and he's like (laughs) He's he's it's very interesting and his magic is is actually really good. <laughs> There's been a lot of things that he's done that I was like, what the fuck? And anyway, yeah, it's it's really cute and it's fairly innocent and delightful to watch. <laughs> Although tonight we decided Max would enjoy this, so I tried to put on like the next episode, which is the last one in the series, to watch with him. 
and my husband was sitting there and I said, Oh yeah, I'm going to share this. And I turned it on and it starts right off. Like mentioning anal and talking about sex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, this hasn't been on any of episode course. until now. I swear that's to God. Funny. <laughs> that's, that's what I it goes like, over. This is what you've been watching with your mom? Jesus. <laughs> I was just thinking this would be something good to watch with my nieces. Maybe I'll just screen for that it, episode. It's the last episode. It's totally clean up okay. until then. <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, apparently it's a sex episode. So I haven't even watched the last one because I had hilarious. to quickly... You know, I got that look from my husband, like, what? <laughs> like, all right, never mind. <laughs> but it's really fun. The other thing I want to tell you guys about is something I, I showed Jackie and Sierra earlier. I bought a little piece of jewelry tonight that I discovered in a local shop, and I'm so impressed. Uh, it's this jeweler called Fire and Bone. What I bought was it's a tiny little silver direwolf skull. And nice. he's like, he's got like his jaws hinged. So his bottom jaw opens and closes. And what's really cool about these pieces is that they start with an actual skull and they use 3D scanners to create a copy of the skull and build a, a, wax, a wax model so that they can shrink oh, nice. it down and make it the right size. And then they use that wax model to create their silver or bronze final piece of jewelry. So it, it creates this like perfect miniature replica of the actual skull. That's really cool. Oh, that's impressive. It's I'm really cool. This. And wow. they have like the whole process on their website. So you can like check out how it's done. But it's really beautiful work. And I love the kind of the little detail of hinging the jaw just makes it so fun. I couldn't stop touching it all day. I was like, open, close, open, close. <laughs> <laughs> it's got these big sharp teeth. So, you know, like I'm just tempted to touch it and feel it. It's very tactile. Like a goth fidget spinner. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it is. it's really awesome and i can't wait to buy more of this jewelry there's a, a great blue heron skull that's just this like really oh long God. pointy beak with tiny little beady eyes but i'm just yeah i go through the site and i'm like oh i want one of those and i want one of those and each one comes with it comes with a chain and then it also comes with its own little like wooden display stand and it's got like a little metal pin in the center of it and each skull has a little hole underneath its jaw so you can set it on the display case when you're not wearing it and it looks like a cool oh, little that's sculpture so cute Oh, that is nice. a nice touch. I'm eyeing this Velociraptor one. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I want this cat one. There's so many. <laughs> I, I want the raven Gotta one. Gotta catch them all. Yeah. Gotta catch them all. I yeah. like the northern owl monkey. He's got these g gigantic mm -hmm. eye cavities. <laughs> like a little round head. Yeah. It looks like an alien. Yeah. And it's cool that there's a wide variety of prices, you know, like you can get bronze, which is like 30 to 40 bucks, or you can go up to sterling silver, which is like 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These would make a great gift for somebody. Oh. June, yeah. when's your birthday? Yeah, so I had to share that with you guys because I just I found it in this weird little like there's this shop that has all handmade jewelry, but most of it is kind of like, you know, flowers and like kind of mm -hmm. mom stuff stuff that my mom loves. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, mom, that's not really my thing. She's keeps trying to get me to buy these like cute flowery things. And all of a sudden, I come across this little case that's got like skulls all over it. And I was like, ooh, I like that. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. Yep. And just, yeah, I had no idea that it was such a cool process. I just found this neat little skull. And now I have a tiny little direwolf of my own. Ooh, the sacred eye. It does need so cool. Everybody needs one. 
there was like a little 11 year old girl like helping her aunt in the shop and she's <laughs> she comes over and she, she got this like puffy little pink dress on she had the cutest little outfit like a puffy pink dress and like a lace top and this beautiful blonde hair with pink tips she's like a little cake top wow race. what a badass yeah, little I mean, girl i told her i'm like listen your outfit is amazing <laughs> Um, and she came over and started telling me all about the jewelry. Like she knows everything about the jewelry in this place. Like, this, oh wow, this girl is an A plus employee, and apparently she's just like a niece or something who's visiting from out of state for the summer. <laughs> like, oh, oh wow, yeah, she's gonna be a true badass when she, she goes. I up. wish I could have not creepily taken a picture of her just to share because, <laughs> like, I listen. I don't see cool little girls yeah. like this every day. <laughs> it's- can't take pictures of random children. <laughs> Not creepy at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I have for you. Cool. All right. Sierra, what do you have for us? So I feel like I haven't been doing too much horror stuff lately. But yesterday, the visible women hashtag was going on again on Twitter. I think we talked about this one before. Yeah. It is a Twitter hashtag for uh, a lot of female or non-binary uh women uh artists who just share their artwork and give a little blurb about themselves and there are so many cool different art styles and not just like comic books but like going into sculpture and fabric art and like it's just incredible so like if you want to go into a time hole and just like be in awe of all of these amazing people visible women is super fun and there's a lot of horror and like witchy stuff in there too nice um so that's the super fun one and then the other thing that i just wanted to mention in case you guys hadn't heard about it yet is that they are going to make another season of veronica mars and i'm super excited for it that was awesome i know bell Bell? Uh yeah way back in the day yeah i love her it's gonna be good (laughs) yeah i think hulu's making it i don't know when it's supposed to be actually airing but it's it's coming and i'm happy about it have you guys seen the show that she's on right now it's not horror at all but it's hilarious uh, a good place yeah yeah i've heard a lot about it i like the premise of it i love it it's, it's good. so funny yeah they have the first season of it on netflix at least yeah um i've only so seen funny. the first season because we we watched the first season and like we discovered it before all of our friends did and we were like oh you guys have to watch the show yeah and then all of our friends got hooked on it and they started watching season two, but we missed the first couple of episodes when they went out to Hulu and then they took them off of Hulu. So oh, really? you, there was like only, you know, the most recent couple and we were, oh. we were already left behind. So just waiting for the next season to come out. But I think they just oh. announced that they're going to do a third season of The Good Place. Nice. Yeah. June. Well, I've got a TV show to talk about, and it, it, maybe it's come up on here before, but I, I didn't expect to be so into this, but HBO's Sharp Objects, have you guys watched that? We haven't talked about it yet, but I'm dying okay. to see it, so I'm oh, also man. dying to hear your opinion of it. Yeah, so it's, I believe it's eight parts. I think uh, this Sunday is going to be the final episode, okay. a miniseries sourced from the novel by Gillian Flynn, who did Gone Girl, which I oh, okay. Yeah, and we've got Amy Adams starring in that. One reason I shared that tonight is because in a lot of ways, it reminds me of The Little Stranger, even though it takes place in our era. It's, you know, kind of a piece of contemporary Gothic fiction. And there's, you know, dark family secrets of palatial home, murders and killer, you know, killings and murders and killings are the same (laughs) thing, aren't they? 
Um, Depends <laughs> on how you do it. Yeah, ghosts and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah. So I've not I've not read the book, but I'm really wishing that I had taken the time to do so before I started the series. Like the Little Stranger, I think it's one of those that it's probably good to take the time to do that before you dig in and start binging it. I mean, it is that good. So, you know, we have these elements of like, there's a serial killer. This is taking place in a town called Wingap, Missouri, which I'm not sure if that's real or fictional, but each episode has a really cool Easter egg aspect to it. There are words hidden throughout each episode. Oh, I'm so sometimes into that kind of like, stuff. Ooh, oh, yeah, sometimes so cool. it'll be words scratched onto the inside of a dollhouse or a road sign may quickly flash to say something else. Example, there's a church banner that says hope, but in one scene, it flashes to hurt. And each episode is just chock full of things like that. There's ghosts that pop up really quickly in some frames Ooh. i've been re-watching the episodes with friends and when i see it again for the second time i'm seeing things that i missed mm-hmm. oh, i love now, that from what i'm reading these words don't really reveal more to the plot or anything that solves the mystery but they really do accentuate some of the other components of the story and to say much more of that would be to give it away but a final note on it watch it on as big a screen as possible hmm. and you'll see why a little mystery there for you very cool yeah and then the other recommendations that i have are works of writing and they play a role in the little stranger novel maybe they will in the film and i've got some links of the pdfs for them that i'm going to send so our listeners can check those out these are victorian books they're concerned with ghosts doppelgangers automatic writing telepathy things of that sort and this is all from the dawn of paranormal science and written by the founding fathers of that field And I think anyone fascinated by like the history of the occult and how it's developed over the years and paranormal research will appreciate it. I'm not recommending them because I believe the information is necessarily true or valid. It can be smoke (laughs) or mirrors or an attempt at, you know, genuine scholarship, but that's besides the point. They're just interesting, entertaining, and spooky documents. Mm -hmm. Cool cool history either way. Yeah. And the authors of some of these texts arguably themselves could be characters in one of Sarah Waters' gothic Victorian tales. The oldest of these PDFs is called The Night Side of Nature, and it was written in 1847 by Catherine Crow. Now, Catherine Crow is well known for writing novels for children and adults that are kind of progressive and forward thinking about human rights and things like that. She was an advocate of women's education. She's born in 1800 and lived till 1876. And later in her life, she really became interested in the supernatural, in particular documents and scholarship that was coming out of Germany. The Night Side of Nature is one of her later works, and it was very successful in its day. And it's actually been reprinted as recently as 2000. It's still very popular. It kind of reads like folklore. That's her approach to it. But I wanted to share with you guys a neat story about Catherine Crow, and it may be highly embellished. And we have Charles Dickens to thank for spreading this rumor. He was a big fan of hers, but he also thought she was a little unhinged. So as her interest in the paranormal became kind of all-consuming, it really started to have an impact on her behavior. And in February of 1854, she got herself in a bit of trouble for walking around Edinburgh naked, except for I think she had a pack of cards with her. (laughs) And she was under the impression that the spirits had given her invisibility. 
Oh, the no. first thing I thought oh, about no. this is <laughs> February. That's that's got to be cold. Yeah. So she she received some help, was taken away for a while, and her treatment was deemed to have been a success. However, after she's recovered her wits, her life changed, and the rest of her days she wrote extensively on the subject of seaweed. Oh, right. So that's you know I've you know. That's quite bizarre. a turn. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're all going to do one I day, if right? There's some kind of connection I'm not seeing. Hmm, but... but we'll all do one day when we get oh. old and retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. especially as sirens. And so wow. while Crow's work is leaning more towards like a collection of folklore, the other two links are actually striving, striving to be somewhat scientific. I've given a PDF link for volumes one and two of Phantasms of the Living. And the main authors are Frederick W.H. Myers, Frank Podmore, and Edmund Gurney. And these guys were the founders of the Society for Psychical Research in London. And and psychical, I, I think I'm saying that correctly, is the original term for paranormal. This is an organization that really tried to distance itself from what it saw as very fraudulent spiritualism. You know, they weren't doing the seances and the planchettes and boards and all of that. They really aimed to be rational and scientific. They were very interested in telepathy, apparitions, hauntings, hallucinations, and the existence of the soul or the personality after death. And just a few notes about these authors. Edmund Gurney was a psychologist as well as a parapsychologist, very interested in hypnotism. Like Myers, he was obsessed on uncovering what part of our consciousness might persist beyond death his own passing was questionable and mysterious may have been suicide murder or an accident but he died from too much chloroform darn yeah (laughs) it happens (laughs) and frederick wh myers is the gentleman who coined the term paranormal which we of course are still using today it's almost a, a household term and he's considered the father of the field he was terrified at the thought of the soul becoming extinct after death and even though he was a scientific man charles darwin's work really kind of scared him about you know the nature of the soul and and you know do we continue where is the separation between science and spirituality he really wanted to make a bridge between these two there were a lot of rumors about him in his life he was said to have had homosexual encounters with some of his other paranormal friends. And of course, at that time, homosexuality is quite the scandal. He did fall in love with his cousin's wife, and his annoyance of her was thought to have been a contributing factor in her suicide. Hmm. He did put out a quite a bit, good deal of writing and had some things that were released after his death that he didn't quite get to polish up. Some of these are, I think one of them is called the continuation of the consciousness after death or something like that is an interesting read and i might be able to find a pdf for that as well so that's the stuff that i've brought to the table all very interesting yeah mm-hmm. very cool you always bring us such interesting stuff jim oh uh, thanks yeah. and i'm very delighted to be talking about once again um haunted homes history gothic you know elements in the horror genre again i'm so excited about the little stranger i think it's gonna be yes august 13th it'll be coming out in the states very cool we're gonna take a very brief break and then we'll come back and talk about the little stranger and sarah waters great
And we're back. Uh, the Little Stranger, a gothic novel written by Sarah Waters, is a ghost story set in a dilapidated mansion in 1940s England. Sarah Waters' early work is known for its themes in lesbian and gay fiction, so this is an interesting and spooky departure from that. When prepping for this episode, we realized that us sirens were woefully unaware of Waters' work, despite the fact that it sounds right up our respective alleys. So we're all very excited to hear more about her works and the adaptations made from them. So, June, tell us all about it. The Little Stranger came out in 2009, and the film will be August 31st for the U.S. release. I think U.K. too. Sarah Waters is wonderful. All of her works, I'll just go ahead and warn you guys ahead of time, they are not fast-paced. I mean, they're really slow builders, but that that slow build is a um, very, very good technique and, and very important, and you'll be glad you stuck with it. The Little Stranger, I'll just say right up front, it takes about 100 pages to really get going, but when you look back, you realize that it was kind of happening all along. Okay. One of the, the critiques that I come about her work a lot is, oh, it takes a long time, you know, to, for things to get going. I don't mind that. I like atmosphere and, you know, building of dread and things of that sort. But if Wuthering Heights makes you want to take your face to a cheese grater, this is not <laughs> the, the writing for you. Uh, it's not as long and lengthy as that. But, you know, it, it is slow and gothic and plodding. It's the good, good stuff. So I found out about The Little Stranger, and this is the first work of Waters that I was introduced to because I'll go to the bookstore and I'll Google list, you know, okay, top 20 ghost stories, top 20 uh, stories set in ancient Rome, something like that. But I noticed that anytime I looked for lists about haunted house books, Sarah Waters was always in somebody's at least top three. That's interesting. Yeah, so this is a thing. And then I pick up a copy of the book. I see Stephen King has a glowing recommendation. He says it's the book of the year. I'm sold. So oh. bring it home. I read I read it. I love it. Of all of Waters' books, this is by far the closest to the horror genre. Like you mentioned earlier, a lot of her books, their focus is on LGBT characters, and that's a great strength of them. And they are in all books but this that does feature into it. All of her books, however, are gothic, and let's get into that. So Sarah Waters is a Welsh woman born in 1966. She lives in London. She has six books so far to her name, and she also co-authored a play called The Frozen Scream, which we have time we may return to that. Mm -hmm. Her stories always take place in England's past, and there's usually a lesbian lead character or two. She's received myriad awards and laudations for her work and there's even academic readers dedicated to analyzing her technique and style there's tons of essays you can find that explore her use of gothic tropes and wow. societal issues i see her work as being characterized by i think three yeah three main points we've got her use of historical setting her use of lgbt characters and issues and most relevant to tonight's discussion her mastery of contemporary Gothic. So getting back to her historical research strengths, she has a considerable academic background. She's got a PhD in historical fiction, in particular gay and lesbian fiction. And this background has really given her an edge with her historical settings, characters, the research, and all of that. And the reader is 
really easily informed by all kinds of details about day-to-day life and whatever era she's speaking about. She addresses class issues, war, politics, cultural tensions, in a really serious and yet at the same time casual manner. I think her passion for the past really shows, but it's a lot more restrained than, say, maybe an Anne Rice passage that's just giving exhaustive detail about a sumptuous parlor from the 17th century. And don't get me wrong, I will read pages of that, but this is just a little more fast and breezy, and she's giving out historical information in more I guess, natural or organic way. It doesn't seem as forced. Would you say that the topics that she writes about, the individual situations in terms of, say, the classes and you mentioned the LGBT mm-hmm. ongoings in that era, they would be factual. They're not something that she kind of creates in that time era. But if you were to research that, they would pretty much be something that you would expect to be true. Oh, I think she's spot on. And she, when she researches an era, she really spends a lot of time about it. She reads popular court cases of the day, oh, wow. um, novels, diaries, plays. She just really immerses herself in it. And she does a good job at the end of her books and listing what her sources were. Now, she does come from a historical background, but she has the freedom of not having to footnote everything. And despite that, she still makes an effort to say, well, this is where... I sourced, you know, things from. That's incredible. You see a lot of people that have that kind of background use that to build the world, but the Mm -hmm. individual relationships between characters are still something that's completely fabricated. And her her attention to historical detail, I mean, I could just speak volumes on that, but we're talking about the spooky stuff here. But yes, I absolutely am impressed with how she carries out and applies her research. And her second big characteristic, the um, use of LGBT conflicts, characters, issues that arise. This is definitely one of the most noteworthy points about her fiction and makes her very, very relevant. It's it's really something to read about these characters. You know, LGBTQ individuals by, by no means have it easy today, but it is something else to be put in mind of a time where they faced even worse oppression. Right. And, and it just, it really makes you stop, think, and appreciate. And of course, we've, we've still got a long way to go. It, it brings that to mind as well. Mm-hmm. So her first novel was called Tipping the Velvet, and that's considered just a masterpiece, a groundbreaking novel, the, the LGBTQ niche. And there has been a screen adaptation. I don't know if it was a miniseries. I think BBC may have done it. And it, it came out quite some time ago. I think that Tipping the Velvet came out in the 90s, 1998, perhaps. 1998. Yeah, I think Affinity made. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now. <laughs> nice. No, you just knew that. Yeah. Top of my head. <laughs> just a fun fact. So all of her stories are rich and gothic themes. You know, they all have old structures uh, that are characters in their own right. You know, jails and asylums and crumbling mansions. The stories are full of taboo subjects. There's twists and turns and dark secrets. It's all dark and edgy. But in my opinion, only four of these six books really qualify for discussion on this podcast. I want to add that the two that I'm excluding I have not read yet, and these are Tipping the Velvet and The Night Watch. And I haven't read them yet for that reason. I'll get around to them eventually, but, you know, the spookier stuff is where my my heart and soul Mm -hmm. is. (laughs) So 
Sarah Waters has said that as a child, she almost read exclusively ghost stories and horror. And she says that all this gothic fiction formed what she calls her mental landscape. It became a template for all of her writing. And like I said earlier, she kind of like turned to the screw and other traditional gothic tales. She builds dread slowly and steadily. And it can, at times can be aggravating. You know that something's about to drop. But I just, I love the tension in her work. It always does take a while, but she's carefully setting up atmosphere. And it makes the moment, of, you know, with a big reveal or where there's a big twist revealed, all that more jarring. She really portrays discomfort, uneasiness well. Let's see, she massages you into this setting and then drastically things will change. And for all that talk of drastic changes... Her subtlety is one of her greatest strengths in these moments. Like she'll do a big reveal and you have it, you don't catch it right away. Um, kind of hard to explain. You'll just have to dig into the books and see for yourself. Hopefully you'll be inspired too. So talking about what I consider her, her dark novels, the stuff worthy of sharing with our listeners. The first of these is Affinity, my second favorite. And this came out in 1999. And this book kind of explores the world of spiritualism, where in The Little Stranger, we're going to be talking a lot about the paranormal. This book, you know, is really sticking to seances and Ouija board type stuff that's kind of very in vogue right now. So our main character is a woman who's who's dealing with a lot of depression. Her best friend and lover has kind of left her for her brother. She's depressed to the point it seems um, like she's about to have some self-harm issues. So she decides to be a lady visitor at a jail in London. I don't believe it's there anymore. Millbank Prison next to the, the Thames River. A nice foreboding structure. She goes and visits the women prisoners, but she's really struck by one of them named Selena Dawes. So much so that she looks into, okay, well, why is she in here? And she discovers that Selena Dawes was a well-renowned, well-known psychic who got into trouble because one of her readings resulted in a death and an assault. So the lead character, Margaret Pryor, the visitor to the jails, slowly gets to know Selena, and she becomes somewhat obsessed with her. You know, they, they really form a bond, and even the other guards at the prison are starting to notice that, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, the most appropriate uh, relationship. She she isn't sure whether Selena is the real thing or not. Selena claims that her powers come from a spirit of a man called Peter Quick. And Peter Quick was the one who got her in trouble and sent her to jail um, by his being a little too rough with one of the, uh, I guess you'd say, clients. Peter Quick, uh, he really likes the ladies. He smokes. Oh, and I should stop and say that this novel is expressed through two different journals. So you have Margaret Pryor, the visitor's journal, and you have Selena's journal, which was written before her arrest. So we get glimpses in Selena's journal that Peter Quick is becoming increasingly powerful, increasingly physical, and able to reach out and literally touch the people who come in for these readings. It's pretty creepy stuff. So anyway, Margaret, she's becoming enamored with Selena. She finds a local reading room for, you know, paranormal research organization in London. And she asks about Selena and learns that she, she's considered in, indeed to be the real deal. And she even finds that they have in a case wax castings from pieces of uh, Peter Quick's body. 
which I didn't realize was a thing in the Victorian era. They would make wax castings of spirits coming through. That's yeah, super wow. cool. Yeah. So she's, she's like, okay, maybe there's something to this Peter Quick. And as her relationship with C- Selena is developing, Selena's little spirit friends are sending presents to her room, things that just couldn't have gotten there on her own. One of them is a choker that occasionally when uh, Margaret's wearing it, it'll just tighten up on her neck on its own. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was just a great, <laughs> creepy detail. Right. So anyway, the two are, are, they're, you know, becoming close and they plot an escape together with the aid from the spirit realm. And that's all I'll say about that one, except Affinity did get a adaptation. It, I think it was a, a TV movie uh, t- came out in 2008. It, it deserved a better budget and more time allowance. I, I think the actresses were good choices, but it felt rushed and condensed and, that slow build of tension that I keep talking about is just lost in this. I wouldn't necessarily give it. Um, That's a bummer. Yeah, give it any attention. But going to uh, Fingersmith, this is a novel that came out in 2002. Um, one thing noticeable about this, David Bowie had a, I think, 100 books you, you've got to read. And this was one of his. So if you don't take my word for it, listen to Bowie. This one explores the lives of... I guess you'd say organized crime in the Victorian era. Our main characters, the story starts, they live in this den of thieves. It's really great. And you've got asylums, you've got madness, Victorian pornography, um, demented relatives. Everybody's identity is deceptive. It's just lots and lots of twists and turns. This one has had two takes on it, you know, bringing it to film. One I really want to recommend, it's been on Netflix, I believe it still is, and on Amazon Prime. It's a South Korean film called The Handmaiden. Hmm. And The Handmaiden, it's taking this, the Fingersmith story, and I want to talk a little bit about the plot, but I don't know if I can do it without giving it away. We'll like just I've say people are plotting on each other like mad. Um, so anyway, this Korean adaptation, they changed the setting. They've put it into 1930s Korea as it's being annexed by Japan. And there's, it manages to capture a lot of the Western Gothic trappings, but also has this beautiful, spooky Eastern footage that's just gorgeous to watch. Um, the director is Park Chan-wook, and he's um, of a film. Oh, shoot, I can't find it. Well, he did a very noteworthy form. We'll have to blur out over this. So I like that the adaptation is in a different time and place. It's very true to Waters' work. It, it addresses sexuality, gender presentation, class issues, war and politics, but within the Korean history. It was a brilliant adaptation, and Waters thinks so as well. There was also a three-part mini-series, um, which you can find on Amazon Prime. That's a pretty good adaptation. It was a BBC production. And the next book that I'm going to mention, I'm not going to say much about. It's my least favorite of these books. It's still a good, a good read, but all of the elements that I like are kind of dampened down a little bit. It came out in 2014. It's called The Paying Guest. And it's this it's a love story and a murder story that are very enmeshed in one another. And there's a lot of interesting anecdotes about how forensic technology existed and, you know, early forms and um, 
the Knights, see, this is right after the First World War. So this takes place, I think, in 1922. But even though that was quite some time ago, there still there still is some forensic work being done. And it is, you know, nowhere near to what we're working with today. But it's it's nice to read about the trial and how this they attempt to solve the murder that the book is featured around. Waters did a lot of research for this by reading a lot about sensational court cases in this era in England. Um, a lot of them involved love triangles, and this story does as well. A yeah, good murder story, but but of these, Sarah Waters, you know, maybe the least uh, compelling. But this brings me to the one I'm really excited to talk about, The Little Stranger. Yay. Yay. So here we go. It takes place in the 40s and the Warwickshire countryside of England. Of course, this is after World War II. Um, the setting is this remote and immense Georgian-style country home, and it's rapidly falling into disrepair. The main characters are the Ayers family. We have the mother, and we have her two adult children, Caroline and Roderick. And there's also some house staff that features in. Our other main character is the narrator of the story. He's a country doctor, Dr. Faraday. And I don't believe we ever learn his first name. Yeah, on the uh, IMDb, it actually just says Faraday. Just says Faraday. Okay, interesting. Because <laughs> in the novel, yeah, it's never never mentioned. So anyway, this Dr. Faraday, he comes to know the, the Ayers family because he has to make a house call where one of the house servants is faking sick in bed. And he can realize that, that this is not, she's not legitimately ill. But it turns out that she's playing sick to avoid what she believes is a very malicious ghost that's shown up in the house and somewhat suddenly just kind of popped up. And he gets to know and have conversations with the family and come to find out Dr. Faraday's mother herself was once a servant in the home. Hmm. So he gets to know them and they befriends them. And Roderick, the son, is disfigured from World War II. He's badly burned and have ner- ner- has nerve damage. So Dr. Fer- Faraday starts to treat him. And the novel traces the decline of the Ayers family, and it's seen through Dr. Faraday's eyes. And it's also tracing how much of this decline is caused by this increasingly hostile supernatural force within the home. And the name of the home is Hundreds Hall. Interesting. Yeah, so the activity starts with objects moving around, and there's messages and scorch marks just appearing in the walls and the furniture. That's and never again, good. That's no. not never good. And I like how it starts out kind of subtle, you know, things like that. I love poltergeist activity where you don't see, you know, the agent of it. It's, you know, mm-hmm. there's not some CGI wispy ghost or anything like that. And it's stuff that, so like, the- they can explain away. At yeah. first, yes, until yes. it's just undeniable. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that that very feature really plays a, is one of the strong points, I think, of this novel. So, yeah, furniture is getting moved around. Weird things are going on. Phones are ringing. There's horrible sounds coming through a device called the speaking tube. It's just getting worse and worse. And it's really affecting all of the objects and the residents of the home. And the struggles that the heirs family has to endure to both deny and wrap their minds around these manifestations, to me, is very believable. All the family members are being attacked, but in different ways, so they all ascribe different causes to the activity. Mm -hmm. To me, this is a great facet of the novel, the way in which the haunted are emotionally and intellectually 
grappling with the root of this issue. So some of the residents are, they're emotionally affected, they're hysterical, but others are calm and applying research and reasoning to what's going on. Two of the more rational and skeptical characters seek accredited and valid information. And this is where the authors that I mentioned in my recommendation section come into play, those PDFs, because they, they find these books and they discuss their theories and how they might or may not apply to their situation. Waters and discussing in one of the interviews that I've linked to this episode, she's, she, you know, as somebody who loved ghost stories growing up, she always had a, a goal to create a ghost story that was, in her words, intellectual. And I really think she nailed it. Um, I think it's precisely that feature that it's a thinking person's ghost story that makes it both classic and very, very different. Is it gross? No, actually... That's a, and that's a really good question. There isn't, I don't, and I can't say, you know, for what the film will do to it, but there shouldn't be a lot of gore. <laughs> gore may be discussed. Well, actually, as I say that, there is one or two. I don't think that's going to feature in. I think this is going to be a lot more psychological. I mean, I kind of like my ghost stories gross, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to have a, a mix, uh, a good mix of that. And everybody will be happy if, if it's half as good as a novel. I think this is going to be a great film. However, <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to our um, Winchester episode, mm-hmm. which maybe we'll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been burned before. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Burned before. But anyway, so at the end of this book, you know, reading the last sentence, I was like, oh, man, I knew I'd have to reread it. And that to do so would be to see the, do- the story in a completely different light, you know, having knowledge of what the big reveal is. But I found it to be just as enjoyable the second time around. And of course, I'm seeing clues this time hiding in plain sight. Um, I, I just really enjoyed it. And again, I want to encourage anybody who thinks that they may want to see the film to please read the book first. And for it being a gothic, slow novel, I think it's the most fast-paced of her writing. So we're getting into the film coming out August 31st. I think I'll be there opening night for sure. Our director is an Irish director, Lenny Abramson. He did 2015's Room, not of course The Room, but just Room, <laughs> which I haven't seen yet. I've heard great things about. And yeah. he got nominated for an Oscar for that. It's produced by Focus Features, Lucinda Coxon. Uh, is the writer. And our stars, um, I think we talked about four. Yeah, Dommel Gleason, who I believe was in Harry Potter, the yeah, oldest. Yeah, he was Bill Weasley. Bill Weasley, okay. Yeah. And I actually, uh, we started talking about this before we started the episode because we're the worst like that. We, all, we always <laughs> do that. Uh, but I pulled up the uh, IMDb since then, and he is like, he's my favorite Weasley now that I look at his IMDb. He is the one that was. Uh, Bill Weasley, and he actually was in Never Let Me Go as well. Okay. For our audience here, uh, I mentioned to June that uh, one of the other lead actors in The Little Stranger, Charlotte Rampling, was in my favorite dystopian movie, Never Let Me Go, which was also set in a very creepy English setting. And Never Let Me Go is a dystopian film starring Carrie Mulligan, and it's wonderfully heartbreaking if that is your deal it is absolutely my deal i love Mm -hmm. being sad (laughs) for some (laughs) stupid reason but he's actually in that as well so that that's bizarre and he's in ex machina and broken mirror and melissa you mentioned something else peter rabbit 
Oh yeah, <laughs> Peter Rabbit. <laughs> well, he's got a he wide does. range. Yeah, he does have a wide range. It's like the younger, less murderous. What's his name? The old man in the garden. You know that wants to kill all the rabbits. Can't think of his name, Mr. McGregor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's actually a really cute movie. You guys should see it. <laughs> yeah. There's um, another actor in it, Will Poulter. He looks really familiar. I know I've seen him in something. I can't place him. Um, from the trailer, he looks like he's going to do a great job as Roderick. Ruth Wilson is another one. I've seen her a lot of places. I know she was in the film i'm the pretty thing that lives in the house mm -hmm. on netflix and that's i love that haunted house story that's a great one um another really slow one but um i just love that film and i think she's a great choice for caroline when i was thinking about you know oh god who are they going to cast for this caroline's character was the one i was the most concerned with they needed somebody to portray her that it wasn't necessarily, you know, glamorous, conventionally attractive. That could have some kind of harsh, you know, features, good at looking, depressed and, you know, morose. I think she's going to nail it. And then getting back to Miss Charlotte Rampling, Jack, I'm seeing a little note here that I have that she was also in Dexter. Did, did one of y'all mention that? Oh. I don't remember her in Dexter, but I did, didn't see all, all of the series. Oh, she was Evelyn Vogel, the doctor. She seems like a good choice as well. I'm glad that the that this novel screenplay, unlike some of the other Waters adaptations, it looks like it's got a you know a Hollywood budget and and and, and I don't think it needs a big budget because the supernatural effects need a lot of finance. It just deserves you know great cinematography, great you know photography, good casting, and all of that. I hope that it won't be tampered with and rushed the way that Affinity was. I was really disappointed by that. Maybe somebody else will take a stab at that. That's that always such a bummer. Oh, yeah. And, and Affinity had a needless heterosexual romantic pursuer, which I just felt was kind of insulting to the Waters' work. It was just unnecessary. Yeah, wow. One of the novel's strengths, like I said earlier, is its subtlety, and I'm worried that some of that will be lost. You know, a lot of these ghost stories, they really want to, once they get those manifestations going, they get carried away sometimes, and it's too much. The um, trailer itself is good, but it, it showed a lot. I mean, nothing was given away in it, but I think they could have held back a little bit on that. I think it's mm. still going to be full of surprises. One of the things that I find most promising about this adaptation of the little stranger is that the director read the book years ago and he fell in love with the story he had no mind towards turning it into a screenplay as he was reading it but as the years went on he just gave it a lot of thought about how could this be turned into a film and and you know effectively retain the um elements of the novel so i'm glad that he gives a cuss about all that and it makes me hopeful, and I'm really excited to see it, and I hope that I've uh, piqued uh, some listeners' interest. That is definitely, um, God, that word just left my brain right there. That's, <laughs> That's my job on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, Charlotte Rampling was in Broadchurch, which is a... Uh, I've heard of that. Uh, is that that That's great, a great like, detective uh, murder show? mystery? Yeah, it's a set in uh, another one set in the UK, and it's a wonderful uh, murder mystery. And David show. Tennant. 
Ooh. Yeah, with David Tennant. And okay. it's, it has a, oh God, it, it honestly has one of the best buildups, I think, of any television show, like recent television show. Nice. Oh, something just popped into my mind that, you know, with this kind of gothic, slow building Victorian stuff. Did any of y'all watch The Alienist? No. No. Ooh, I should have put that on as a recommendation. Well, can I just throw it in? I think Absolutely. you just did. So then, I think I just did. Yeah, I'm doing it. It's happening. Okay, so The Alienist was a novel adaptation, but I think in it, I think it came on TMC, T, T, Turner Class, I don't know, something like that. Anyway, it's got, oh, now the actress's name, but Dakota Fanning. Okay. Is one of the main characters. It's like a trio of people investigating a serial killing. And one of them is an alienist. And an alienist is the original term for like a forensic psychologist. Hmm. And huh. there's some scary murders happening in New York City involving, sadly, young children prostitutes. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful, gorgeous, dark, and eerie television series. I imagine it's only going to be the one season. But it's worth worth a watch there's a lot, like paying guest i was talking about it's interesting just to see what the forensic capabilities of the time were and what the understandings of mental illness were and dakota fanning's character gives us you know a good glimpse into the hardships of females at that time and um and equal rights and the like so yeah check out the alienist that sounds very interesting in a very depressing way which is definitely my jam (laughs) and i'm hoping the little stranger i'm hoping that this is gonna (laughs) not be like winchester you guys i was so disappointed yeah it it was bad (laughs) i mean my (sighs) video editor husband is constantly reminding me to not judge or make or not make too many presumptions <laughs> about a movie based on the trailer because uh-huh. the people who make the trailers apparently have very little to nothing to do with the movie. They're yeah. you know dudes in suits who put something together to what they think is going to get the most people to show up at the box office. I've right. lately pretty much stopped watching trailers partly because of that and partly because I kind of don't want things ruined by trailers. It's mm-hmm. yeah. You know, lately I've had things just straight up, <laughs> just have straight up spoilers seen in trailers and it just bothers me. I see more of that too. I've seen so much I'm of like, it, well, like create a, uh, certain uh, assumptions about a film for people. And I think like Star mm-hmm. Wars is one of the best examples of that. So many people were upset in the last two Star Wars films because there were scenes in the trailers that never showed up in the film, you know? Oh, interesting. <laughs> like, Things that people oh. thought were like, oh, this is going to be such a cool moment. And then they just, it just wasn't ever, you know, it was, it was something because often they patch together a trailer using like excess footage or like stuff that's kind of been cut out, but they want to use the footage so they can create a trailer from it, you know? Yeah. That's messed up. <laughs> lies. It's all lies. But I guess it's, eff- <laughs> yeah, I guess it's effective. But, you know, Winchester, they had, I think one of the biggest things that made me so mad was just the script itself. I mean, you have this fascinating, whether it's true, you know, we explored how a bunch of that was just crap, but, you know, as far as the stories of the ghosts and stuff, but these, you could have made such a great film off of that. Yeah, All it was still anecdotes. a I mean, really fascinating story. They didn't yeah. need to make up another one. I'm hoping somebody <laughs> will will say, no, we need to do that right. The one thing I can say is, I kept saying, oh, that outfit, though. 
No. Oh, that outfit. <laughs> I mean, the, the clothes and stuff were just kind of carrying it for me. I yeah. can't remember who did that movie, The Others, with Nicole Kidman. But I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like oh, if those yeah. if they had done like Winchester in that style, like very quiet and sort of, oh, you know, yes. gloomy and like everything, like you could hear the tick ticking of the clock and like that house needed to just be like silent and still and mm-hmm. not you know not too much exposure of things like let your imagination play a little bit more well hmm. said and the others was such a good yeah. film yeah it's still just as i enjoy that i'll have to give that another view beautifully soon. made like classic yeah. ghost story yeah. i think it, i think that's got to be in my top five haunted house films so this that's is unrelated one. to any of our topics tonight but while i have you gals here do you have yeah. any halloween decoration or costume plans so far Ooh. I haven't even been able to think about Halloween yet. <laughs> it's like the end of August, Ugh. Melissa. Pull it together. My life. <laughs> Before you know it, it's going to be October. <laughs> well, one thing I can contribute is there's there's an old company, American company. I think it's pronounced Beistel. B-E-I-S-T-L-E. Yeah, I've, I've been pronouncing it Beistel, but I have no it, idea it, it, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so much of Halloween is an American invention. You know, the, the different visual icons that we have and the activities and like. And, I, and from what I understand, Beistel or Beistel is a big agent in the development of, you know, Halloween and Americana. I have been really enjoying getting their reprints of vintage Halloween decorations and little Halloween games. There's a website. We, I get some of it on Amazon, but a website called sourpuss.com that has great all kinds of neat clothes and housewares and cool stuff. They have a lot of these items in their Halloween section. Yeah, I've been kind of lusting after some of that year after year. They actually have, it's bysolarbeastle.com as well. Oh, I should never thought They have some of their vintage Halloween cutouts and such. But yeah, I actually have some Australian friends that are kind of obsessed with Halloween and they... (laughs) hate that it's not a big thing there Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that that it's just it's very much an american thing that you know (laughs) they don't get to partake in in other countries can't imagine such a life i know (laughs) what a bummer i'll have to it's uh ask my kid what we're being for halloween this year i don't know yet (laughs) (laughs) that's true you don't really get to decide anymore it's just easier that way (laughs) Mm -hmm. in ashland where i grew up Halloween is such a huge deal where like the whole town just like goes downtown for a big parade. And it's so weird to me that every city doesn't do that. (laughs) Like I I would think that Seattle would like completely lose it over Halloween, but compared, I know it's, it's weird. Yeah. Savannah, like everybody in Savannah loves Halloween. There's a, you can't drive a car through downtown Savannah around Halloween. It's just, totally full but the oh, city wonderful there yeah the city doesn't really i mean there's no parade there's no official city anything for halloween and i i don't know why they don't take advantage of that like they take advantage of it for saint patrick's day for sure so why not Halloween? You know? my little town does it and we're like a tiny little like mountain college town you know but we like they have their own parade every year everybody comes out for it and then like at the end of the parade you just join on to the parade so the whole town ends up like walking mm-hmm. through the parade <laughs> that's it, awesome i legit want to like run for city council on the platform that we should have Halloween. <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs> yeah. we also have 
There's a little local bakery (laughs) that has a very well-known pumpkin carving contest every year. So they have like people um, carve these amazing pumpkins and they, they lay them all out on like a, so like they make like a corridor out of them all the way around the outside of the bakery. So you can walk through all the rows and check them out throughout the evening. And it's very oh, impressive. Nice. It's not. <laughs> I've always I skipped it in years past. I thought I don't need to see pumpkins, and then one year I finally went, and I was like, oh, okay, this is some serious <laughs> that's, pumpkin work. That's like, that's like the gingerbread houses up there at the uh, Grove Park in June. Oh yeah. Oh man, <laughs> that's like, yeah. Gingerbread houses. Who wants to see that? And then you go out there. There's literally hundreds of expertly designed gingerbread houses. Like. Holy shit, this was the yeah, coolest thing. You just thing ever. imagine, you know, that they can <laughs> so intricate. Like, what's how I, I wish saw they this... had a pumpkin. Yeah, what's how I saw this? Um, what are those? Uh, uh, a Fabergé egg made out of gingerbread. And it was like so intricate. And I mean, it's it, the rules state that everything has to be edible. Yeah. So, oh my God, it was incredible. But yeah, I mean, that's not spooky or Halloween related, but it's just still just incredible. <laughs> So it sounds like none of us are uh, on our costume game. Not quite. <laughs> Normally, yet. I have it figured out by now. We'll get there, though. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for this episode. Yeah, and um, hopefully next time we get together and chat, we'll be talking about how great the film was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah, June again. Crossed. Thank you, as always, for joining us. We love it when you come on here and tell oh, and us. I, I love being on cool here stuff. with you guys and. <laughs> Yeah, I look forward to discussing spooky topics in the future. This has been The Scientist Scream. Thanks for joining us in all our spooky endeavors. It is our deepest pleasure to explore the depths of the horror genre with each of you, and there's nothing we love more than reaching right into the depths of the dark with all of our creepy crawlies just to tell you about it. To keep us going, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to these pod things. If you want to come chat with us or have us come chat with you, head us up at sirens at sirensofscream.com. Find show notes, past episodes, and links at sirensofscream.com and hit us up on social media links at the top of the page there to send us some love or tell us what you'd like to hear about on our show. You can find us on social media as well. Uh, Melissa, where can listeners find you? You can find me at Lissa Punch on Twitter and Instagram and on the Talking Comics podcast. Sierra, how about you? at Sierra Houck, S-I-E-R-R-A-H-O-U-K. And I am Jackie the Robot on Twitter and Instagram. And June, where can listeners find you and all of your coolness? Well, I still have a a very non-existent (laughs) presence. You need to pull that together. (laughs) Yes, yes, I do need to. But I, I am on Facebook and... I do have an Instagram, but I've never once posted a picture. I sure like everybody else. <laughs> it's an um, invisible Instagram. Yeah, it's a ghostly Instagram. <laughs> that. yeah. That's okay. I'm just we'll, cultivating mystery here. We will link to your Facebook for now, though. Great. <laughs> and thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time.
and the angels of God's new heart.